Hi, this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today we are updating an episode that is very near and dear to me that Kristen and Caroline did a couple, a while back on women, the history of women running marathons or not running marathons. Because for a long time, it um, was not as easy as you might think for a, for a woman to run in a marathon. It was seen as unhealthy for her, bad for her uterus. <laughs> so many things that society wants women to not do, they say it's bad for your uterus. I know. We don't want to. We don't want to mess with that. Let's just. Uh, let's just not run. How about that, ladies? Exactly. That. Um, one of my favorite. I hope that you're okay with me sharing this. But when Annie and I first became friends, and we first started doing the show together, we were once taking a walk in Atlanta on the. Uh, is it the Skyline? What's it? Oh, the, the Beltline. Um, the Beltline. And I'm a I'm a dog fanatic. Like if I see a dog, I run up to it and want to make friends with it. And there was this really cute dog. I hope Annie's shaking your head. She doesn't want me to tell this story. Um, but uh, is it okay if I tell it? Go for it. Go for it. And I said, "Oh, Annie, look at that cute dog." You know, I was really excited. And she said, "Oh, I don't really like dogs." And I said, "Oh my god, you don't like dogs?" Like this was shocking information. But then she explained that because she's a avid runner. When you're a big runner, sometimes dogs create a problem and that they have created a problem for Annie and that thus she's not super into, she does not have the overwhelming love of dogs that I had. So that was the first, like, this was very, very early on in meeting Annie. And I was like, oh, running must be a huge part of her life if if it's such a big part of her day to day that it's made, it's changed her relationship to dogs. (laughs) I'm glad you didn't just like, uh, I'd rather you not come on Sminty anymore. <laughs> Listen, it took me a anyone. while. You know, I'm usually skeptical of people who don't like dogs, but, you know, uh, I warmed up to you. We, we, we got through it. We did. Um, that is one of my deepest, darkest confessions that Bridget just shared. I know, as I was sharing it, I was like, am I getting too personal? Annie's dislike of dogs? I like dogs in a non-outdoor running setting. And I'll just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> I do love running. I I run all the time. I will I will say my relationship with running. I call it my coping mechanism gone wrong. So I perhaps run too much, and I'm trying to back away from it. But ne- nevertheless, I am getting. I'm gearing up to run the Atlanta Peachtree Road Race, which is the largest 10K in the world, and it takes place on the Fourth of July. Um, Kristen and Caroline are going to talk about that in the in the episode that we're about to play as well. It's a big part of Atlanta. Um, my ex-boyfriend is running it, and I uh, some pride's on the line. I got to I gotta beat him. Yeah, uh, that's... We, I, I loved how we talked about this earlier off mic. You're very competitive about it. I'm extremely competitive about it. Um, <laughs> and I try to keep it, like, low-key, so I don't, I don't freak people out, but I'm very competitive. And I'm ashamed to say I started running... A, originally to impress a guy and he could have cared less he could have cared less but it did push me to i was the only woman we had like these weird teams at georgia tech and i was on one of them and i was on the fast team and i was the only woman on the fast team so what's funny to me is that the atlanta road race is also kind of a big thing in my family my dad did it pretty much every year Uh, my aunt marie and sometimes my aunt veronica would also join him what's funny is that so i've actually never been but the way they describe it is they're walking. Sometimes they like stop and like get a drink. People are giving them slices of pizza. 
When I, I was like, oh, it's this fun freewheeling thing. It wasn't until talking to you, Annie, that I realized, oh, people take it seriously. <laughs> it just goes to show yes. how some people can take some people take it very, very seriously and are very competitive. Others are basically, you know, eating tacos yeah. and drinking beer. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I've always kind of wanted to stop and partake in the beer and tacos, but yeah, I'm I'm like way too competitive. Plus, it's really hot. It's very hot. So I like to get it. I like to finish as early as possible to to beat the heat, if that's a thing. Um, we do have some facts for you. The rates of female race finishers have gone up since this episode, this um, classic episode was first recorded. In the U.S., women made up for 57% of finishers in 2016, or about 10.7 million female racers, and that's up 25%. So a lot more women are running. And it's become a lot more diverse. Groups like Black Girls Run are helping to diversify running, Black Girls Run, which is a group that I'm affiliated with, has about 200,000 participants. And it really kind of makes it more of an inclusive space. But what I love about Black Girls Run is that it just sort of reminds folks that running and then physical fitness writ large is for everybody. I think, you know, it can be considered something that Black women don't do for a whole host of reasons that we should get into for in another episode. But there are groups that are trying to remind folks that running is for everyone. Women, people of color, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this uptick in running means that companies are finally starting to look into putting out better equipment for women, like better sports bras. The sports bra episode is one of Sminty's most popular episodes ever, so we should should look into that. And of course, there are problems. There are still problems because uh, it can be cost prohibitive for some people, not easily accessible. Um, Products marketed towards women are generally more expensive. Um, but it is, it's good that we're moving that way because some women are turned away from sports and athlete, athletic things in general because the equipment isn't there that, to give them the comfort that they want when they're participating in things like that. Oh man, I, I, that's been the case for me. Like I, I'm pretty physically active. I don't really do it to sort of stay fit. I do it for fun because I enjoy it. But when I was trying to find what would be my sport or my activity, Something that really, and this this sounds so silly and so high school, I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, but so many of the things I tried out, I felt uncomfortable because I didn't have the right, the right accoutrements, I guess I'll say. I remember I tried SoulCycle and, you know, a lot of my friends do SoulCycle. I'm not, I'm not shit SoulCycle, but so many of the people who did it had the spe- like the special shoes and the special, like very specific kinds of athletic wear and they just had a certain look that I, yeah. you know, did, did not have. You know, I showed up in, you know, raggedy shorts and a tank top. And it did make me feel uncomfortable. And I certainly, like, like they sell clothing there. And I certainly couldn't have afforded, you know, the things they were hawking. But everyone, everyone seemed to have it. And so when I found a cycling program where everybody was wearing kind of whatever, it was sort of come as you are, and they did sell products, but they were cheaper and sort of, they didn't look, they, it's hard to explain, but they didn't, the things that they sold in the store, the gear, just looked more nondescript. And I felt much more comfortable that, you know, it just seemed to signal to me that it, it's okay if you don't have the right shoes, the right this, the right brand of that, you can still take part. And so I think that that, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's so real that that, the need to buy certain things is not inclusive for everybody because not everybody can spend $40 on a specific kind of shoe or what have you. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
And I remember I was someone who like went through puberty at eight. So there's pictures of me in school where everyone's like really short and I'm super monstrously tall. Um, and I just remember running in gym and I didn't have a sports bra and being so mortified by the whole thing. Um, so it is important. And your your boobs can break your clavicle. Um, <laughs> that was a fun fact I remember from the sports bra episode. So it's important. And um, I'm glad that it's becoming... It's finally being taken seriously and becoming more accessible for people. Still have room for improvement always, but I'm glad we're moving in that way. Um, and there, there have been kind of two things that have happened recently that have made me think about running. And one is that this year's Boston Marathon was a really tough one. Uh, there was a lot of rain, high winds, it was cold. Um, but the show must go on. The race has never been canceled because of weather. And some people noticed something interesting. Most years, women traditionally have a higher dropout rate than, than men, but this year, with this weather, men had higher dropout rates. And the dropout rate for men was up 80% from the previous year for a total of about 5%. And for women, it was up only 12% for a total of about 3.8%. Um, and there are a lot of theories for why this is. Maybe it's that women have higher body fat so they could withstand colder temperatures better. Uh, however, in 2012... When the problem was the opposite, when the problem was blistering heat, women also had higher rates of finishing the race. So another theory is that it has to do with psychology. Author of the book Endure, Alex Hutchinson, says that while dropping out may feel like a physical thing, like you physically can't take it anymore, it's almost always a decision you make. Almost always. <laughs> and it is, I remember when people would tell me, Oh, you can you can run a marathon, and in my head, I'm just like, there's absolutely no way. Um, and they'd say, if you could run this distance, then you'll you'll be able to run a marathon. And I have found that they were correct. It's if you can conquer a certain amount of mileage, then like there's not. It doesn't seem as big a difference, like twelve to fourteen to sixteen. It sounds ridiculous. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it doesn't sound ridiculous to me at all. Um, I've never run a marathon, and I, I cannot see myself ever doing it. Um, <laughs> the Probably the biggest physical feat I've ever done was biking a century, which is 100 miles. Um, I didn't think I could do that, and I did it, sort of. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll say I did it. Some, some okay. listen, if there are some people listening out there, they might push back on that. I'm going to say I did it. We'll just leave it at that. We won't get we won't get into the details. Um, but you're, you, I think that you, I think you, you would be surprised what you can endure a lot of times. And I think the traditional wisdom is that women are are frail, are weak. But I, I love this other theory that you brought up that actually one of the differences between male and female um, running or, or big physical feats might just sort of be just how we make decisions differently, that men are more willing to engage in riskier behavior. So in this case, running faster at the beginning of a race and sort of not pacing themselves. But women might be more likely to think, okay, I've got this long race. Let me pace myself here, have a short burst here, you know, planning out how, how you're going to make this seemingly impossible feat actually work. But that might be, some of, some of the theories are that that might be part of the difference between female and male decision-making that plays out. Yeah, um, studies have shown that women pace themselves better throughout, about 19% better. 
Um, and according to a study of thousands and thousands of racers, almost 100,000, um, that, that they kept seeing that play out over and over. And the, the researchers found this held true in all age groups. Another study found that women were better at adapting their pace and shifting their goals mid-race as compared to men. They kind of, they would make this riskier choice at the beginning of a race. And then if they felt like they weren't going to succeed in what they wanted to succeed in, they were more likely to drop out. Whereas women kind of adjust as they go and it's more areas of gray. Um, so that was interesting. Um, it, as always, you can take that with a, with grains of salt. There's a lot of things at play. Um I just thought that was interesting. And another thing um, I, I've been thinking about a lot lately is, is harassment because I, I remember so clearly this article I found um, and it had 10 tips for running for men on one page and 10 tips for running for women on one page. And one page, the page for men, it was like protein intake, change up your route, uh, interval training. And for women, the tips were don't run with headphones. Don't wear a ponytail. Never run alone. Never run at night. Carry your license so the authorities will be able to identify you if you're murdered. Damn. That's, pretty, that's a pretty stark difference. It really is. It really is. Um, and it, it is something that, like, every time I feel a lot of us who do run, we take that into account. Like, what route am I going to take? Should I tell someone where I'm going? I know that for me personally... Three different people have gifted me pepper spray, running pepper spray, um, just because they know I run and they worry about it. Um, a 2016 survey survey of 4,670 runners, about 2,500 of which were female, conducted by Runners World, found that over 43% of all runners and almost 60% of the respondents, 30 are younger, had experienced harassment while on a run, and 94% of those harassers were men. Some reported being followed, intimidated, propositioned, and they um, a lot changed their route out of fear of assault. 60% of women said that these fears kept them from running at night. 21% run with pepper spray. 27% switched to treadmills, but that they said that the harassment still continued indoors. A lot of women reported wearing clothes that were um, less comfortable, to try to cut back on harassment? Well, of course it continues indoors because you have situations where creepy dudes will, you know, record your butt on a treadmill without, without your consent or knowledge. Like, I, yeah, it's, it's so, it pains me so much that even if you switch, switch up your behavior to keep yourself safe, it, just, it doesn't matter what you do. Creeps yeah. will find a way. Creeps find a way. <laughs> Creeps find a way. I'm pretty sure Jeff Goldblum said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, um, and some of the things that these women in the survey reported were, were like, very scary. Women, uh, men following them in cars, masturbating alongside them, calling out the window that they need to stop ha- uh, stop running and to have sex with them. Um, the survey itself was in response to, uh, I believe it was three high-profile murders of women while running. And um, they were separate instances, but they happened in close succession, so it kind of started this whole... How safe is it for for women to run? And um, it is a self-selecting study, and the chance of getting murdered while running is very small. You're likelier to get hit by a car, which has happened to me multiple times. Oh, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) I have to be honest. I do worry about you with running because I know that you're—I hope that you don't mind me saying this—a touch Uh accident-prone. 
And so I would be much more likely to gift you like a helmet than pepper spray. <laughs> that would be a far wiser and appropriate gift, I have to say. <laughs> My doctor has recommended that I wear a helmet at all times. Wow. And it's just not useful, uh, practical in everyday life. But, okay, um, well, Christmas is coming up, so I know what to get you. <laughs> so <laughs> keep that in mind. Um yeah, this is part of a larger societal problem, right? But um, it's something, when I saw that article with the tips for men and women, I was just like, this is ridiculous. It's so backwards. Like, your tips for a run are to survive the run. Like, it's nothing about improving your performance or anything. And, of course, that is a stressor on on people who decide to, to run. Um, uh, but it is it is a hobby that I... Um, really love, and I'm excited about running the race. Uh, <laughs> uh, nervous, but excited. You gotta do. Um, you you gotta do a report back to tell us how you did as comparatively to your ex boyfriend. Also, if he's listening, <laughs> I, w- I want to get in his head. You're gonna choke out there, and he's gonna <laughs> and he's gonna wipe the floor with you, dude. Bridget, Just give up. You are the best. <laughs> I feel like you're like my hype person. Oh yes. I, if I if I could, I would run alongside him you know, distracting him and, like, screaming things just so you would win. I, I, I would, I would uh, rig the race in your favor. That, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, Bridget. Um, so we hope you enjoy this, this update on running, um, this episode that Kristen and Caroline did. It's more of uh, kind of the history of women running marathons. So, yeah, please enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And before we go any further, this episode on women and marathons is owed to a listener, Scott Perry in Calgary. This one's for you. Scott Perry sent us an email saying, hey gals, guess what? The Boston Marathon is rolling around April 16th, and it marks the 40th anniversary of women being officially allowed to run in it. And so I forwarded the email to Caroline. I said, hey, Caroline, you know what's awesome? We have a fantastic listener named Scott who has a fantastic idea about running. And then we talked about Scott for a while and how smart he was. Yeah, we were actually, we were going to do the podcast originally on Scott Yeah, Perry, just about Scott. But we thought that could get creepy. Yeah, his Facebook profile was private. So we decided to go with Boston Marathons, a broader topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll kick things off with a little marathon anecdote. While I do jog um, a couple times a week, if I'm being good, I try to do it at least a couple times a week. I'm not really a long distance runner. The only long distance marathon I have ever participated in was uh, the Peachtree Road Race, which is one of the largest 10Ks mm-hmm. in the world. There's something like 55,000 participants yeah. who run right past our building, in fact, here in Atlanta, Georgia. And a few years ago, my then boyfriend and I decided that we wanted to run the road race. It was the 4th of July. It'd be something kind of fun to do together. There are all these people. I was a recent um, transplant to Atlanta. So we didn't really think about the fact that, hey, this 
spur of the moment idea <laughs> means that we didn't have a number, and we didn't realize that that we we thought you know you could just you could just sort of jump on the course, you could just run it. Uh, there were so many other people who did have numbers. Would two people without a number really make a difference? So we took Marta, the the um, public transit, down to the start of the race. There's swarms of people. It was at the break of dawn. It was very eerie. It was actually kind of like zombie land out yeah. here because there were just people walking around and sort of next to nothing and running gear while the sun was rising. And ran into Sarah from Stuff You Missed in History class, who, of course, had a number, like a proper, <laughs> a proper participant. And she immediately and gently informed us that we might want to watch our bags and keep a low profile because we really should not be on the, the course without numbers. Will you get thrown off? Yeah, there are people on there watching to see um, if you have a number or not. Well, is it is it to protect against like crazy people doing crazy stunts, or is it just like there's already so many people there, we don't want unregistered runners? There are already so many people there, and especially for the really serious runners that go first, there are those time trials that they have to mm. compete in other marathons, so you don't want random folks just mucking up the <laughs> the race course. But the good news is, good news for me anyway, is that my boyfriend and I were able to run it anyway. And my favorite part was uh, passing by a Catholic church where a priest was throwing out holy water on the runners. So I like dodged over and uh, got sprinkled. And I really think that it helped me cross the finish line. Good. And you didn't melt or anything? I did not melt, even though I'm not Catholic. So... (laughs) Hey, anything helps mm-hmm. when you're running that long. I, I, I'm a very loose jogger. I jog sometimes when I feel like it. I get into periods of jogging. That's about it. I'm imagining you like running without using your arms. For some reason, that's my <laughs> my image of, of loose jogging. <laughs> oh, just okay. flailing your shoulders around. Well, you know, I thought it was funny that you mentioned that you and your boyfriend just like jumped in because... Well, it's not funny because that's how women had to run marathons at first. Right. Because they just, they weren't allowed, like flat out, women were not allowed to register for marathons. I mean, they could run, they could do what you guys did and, you know, be unofficial participants and and not have their time count or anything, but... They were not welcome. Yeah, the thing is, I was merely following in the footsteps of women like Roberta Gibb and Catherine Switzer in the Boston Marathon. Um, And since we kicked things off talking about the Boston Marathon, we should go ahead and mention that this race has been going on since 1897. And 2012, we're only at the 40th anniversary of women being officially allowed to run. And like you hinted at earlier, Caroline, uh, there were women who jumped into the fray secretly in the Boston Marathon. In 1966, the first known woman to do this was Roberta Gibb, who had applied to run in the Boston Marathon, but her application was rejected because women were not, according to the official rules of amateur running at the time, women were not allowed to run that far, which is a marathon, we should go ahead and say, is 26.2 miles. Right. Which makes me tired just thinking no. about it. Yeah, I have no desire. I, I see people running. I know. I have friends who just ran a half marathon. My roommate was part of that. He came home, and I, I don't think he moved. 
I think your flailing arms and shoulders <laughs> would be very tired by the end of that. <laughs> they sure would. Probably throw something out of a socket. <laughs> they would. Um, but Gib wasn't trying to make a statement. She wasn't trying to break down barriers. She just wanted to run. She was uh, a 23-year-old young Navy wife, and um, she had watched the race in 1964 and pointed out that all she saw was people. She didn't take note of the fact that there were no women running. She just thought it was neat. She liked the type of people who participated, and so she wanted to get involved also. So in 1966, she, uh, she, she goes to Boston and kind of hangs out on the sidelines like, oh, no, I'm just me? No, I'm just wearing shorts because uh, it's March or April in Boston. You know, no, no problem. And she ended up jumping in as the runners came by. Yeah, there's a little bit of controversy about where she actually jumped right. in, whether or not she ran the entire course or if she jumped in a little less conspicuous spot, more in the in the middle of the marathon. But nevertheless, she crossed the finish line, ended up getting a time of 3 hours, 21 minutes, 40 seconds, and finished, not too bad, 126th out of 500. The next year, Catherine Switzer enters the race. And this is the story that has been circulating around blogs as uh, this year as the Boston Marathon approaches because there is photographic evidence of the race organizer, one of the organizers, Jock Semple, trying to push Switzer off the race course. Like literally. Literally off the, yeah, pushing her off physically. Um, she ended up getting into the race officially by applying as KV Switzer. But she claims, she, she's a little sneaky about this. She claims that, oh, well, you know, I was just, I was using my initials just in in day-to-day business. But she also knew that if she registered as Catherine, she would not be allowed to run. Right, and she managed to avoid the pre-race physical, too, by saying that she'd been cleared earlier. So so she had a plan. She knew what was going on. She knew what was going on. And uh, if you've seen pictures at all, if you follow any news about the race or know anything about running history, there are a lot of pictures circulating now, too, of that... Uh, of that period where uh, this jock simple guy, this crotchety old Scottish man, tried to push her out of the race. And you can see where Tom Miller, Switzer's boyfriend at the time, who was a football player and a big dude, just like totally <laughs> body checked him. And pushed him off the uh, off of his girlfriend. Well, the photos are somewhat disturbing because what what had happened was that as she was running the race, the the media that was they had uh, media trucks that were tracking the people running, and there was word that spread that there was a woman running. She's running along in this with kind of, a number, with a number, which is important, with a f- kind of a floppy uh, sweatsuit on, and so they start taking pictures of her, and this catches. Is Jock Simple's attention, and some of the media people start heckling Jock Simple, saying, "Hey, look, there's a there's a woman running in your race," and he was just incensed, specifically at the fact that she had a number. And according to Switzer, he grabbed her and said, "Get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers." But like you said, her football boyfriend. Basically, uh, just tackled him, got him out of the way, and she kept running and crossed the finish line with a time of 420. Yeah, which she admits is not the best time. But she said that she was determined to finish the race on her hands and knees if she had to, just to prove that a woman could, because she realized at that time how important 
this whole thing was. If she was like being physically pushed out of the race by one of its organizers, she just realized how important it was that her participation be visible. Yeah, Sports Illustrated interviewed Jack Semple a couple of years after this incident, and he was completely unapologetic. He uh, claimed that, you know, he, he was not motivated so much by getting a woman off the track, but as an unauthorized number holder to right. make up a phrase. <laughs> well, Switzer actually uh, endured a lot of criticism for her hobby, which is running. Um, back in 1966, the year before the marathon, uh, when she was training at Lynchburg College in Virginia, that, you know, after the whole Roberta Gibb thing, that had attracted the attention of the Associated Press, who ran an article. And after the article ran, Switzer got a letter saying that God will strike you dead. If she tried to run? Yeah. Well, being a runner, because she was training with the men's team. And so this attracted all sorts of negative attention. And I just can't, I, I just can't imagine thinking that running with men as a woman is enough to get me struck down. Smited? Smote? <laughs> you might be smote. Struck by lightning? <laughs> I do think we should clarify that, that Switzer said that the, the negative attention at the time was not coming from the other male runners. Right. The guys were fine with her running alongside them and probably thought it was cool. But she said that the, the real negativity came from race organizers and the media and athletic associations that were clinging to this notion that running long distances was bad for women. Bad, and when I say bad, I mean physically bad. Um, and we should talk about a little bit earlier in the, in the history of running, and especially in the Olympics, that because of poor coaching styles, when women would run longer races, like there was a, a half mile in the 1932 Olympics, and a number of women who competed in it actually collapsed before they crossed the finish line because they were exerting so much energy at the outset, they were completely exhausted by the end. Yeah, and there was just this general belief that any long-distance running put too much of a strain on women and interfered with their ability to get pregnant and have children so that it would it would hurt your uterus mm-hmm. to run. Well, and that was also connected with um, some female runners complaining of irregular periods. So doctors assumed that by extension, if you're running a lot, your periods are irregular, you must be damaging your uterus, and by God, you won't be able to have children. Right. Um, the website Run Like a Girl Film dot com. It's uh, it's it's based on the film Run Like a Girl. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? Um, and they have a lot of running history on their website. And uh, in 1928, women were allowed to compete in the Olympic track and field events, but because of their exhausted condition at the end of the 800 meter final, the event was dropped until 1960. So apparently, they looked so shabby at the end that people were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! How is your uterus?" Do you need to sit down? Maybe we shouldn't do this. Don't run so far. And because of that, women were certainly barred from running 26.2 miles, which is the official length of a marathon. But once Switzer competed, um, then in 1969, and a lot of this does happen, these barriers are being broken at the Boston Marathon, we have Cambridge native Sarah Mae Berman, who won in the women's division. But this was unofficial because women had not yep. yet been invited. Right. Yeah, in 1970, Berman finished with a strong time of three hours, five minutes, and seven seconds, at which point a reporter asked, why did you do it? And at the time, she was steaming. Like, are you kidding me? 
I just got this incredible time and I ran and I did great. And your, your, your question for me is why did I do it? And she just said that they were just so patronizing, the reporters, the observers of the race. But now her attitude has changed a little bit about why they asked that question. Yeah, she talks a lot about how the headlines at the time would be like, housewife running. There was always this, had to be this juxtaposition of some kind of stereotypically you know, feminine occupation with what at the time was a masculine pursuit of running, even though today women comprise, I think it's 55% of competitors in road races. Um, and then in... 1972, the Boston Marathon finally um, officially invites women to enter, and Nina Kusick wins for the women. And this is a funny little tidbit. Catherine Switzer ends up getting third in the women's, but her trophy was broken. And when Jock Semple, the curmudgeonly Scott... It presents her with this broken trophy, he said that she deserved it broken. Yep. He said that he'd been mad at her for years. That five ju- years. That Jack Simple holds a grudge. He does. And he, I, uh, there was an article that basically, an uh, interview with him a couple years later where he basically was like, yeah, I'm mad about it. <laughs> Still, he wasn't, he wasn't going to let it go. Well, if you look at the photos of him when he's trying to push her off the track, there he has a crazed look in his eye. Yeah. And when he's talking about that, it seems like be, because of that photographic evidence, perhaps the sting was a little bit sharper. Yeah, Catherine Switzer in one interview did talk about how you could, when her boyfriend hit him, you could you could hear like his body being shoved aside. Like the the hit was so hard. So maybe his maybe his pride was hurt in addition to his body <laughs> when that happened. Seventy-two, the Boston Marathon opens up to women, but the Olympics did not open up a women's marathon until the LA Games in 1984, and they were still hung up. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, was still hung up on that idea that running a long distance would injure women and especially their ability to have children. Um, but several studies would emerge especially from an Atlanta physiologist, David Martin, at Georgia State University, who found that um, women's long-distance running was just fine for them. And because of the way the female body stores fat, there was this notion that we might actually be better equipped for long-distance running compared to men. Mm -hmm. And research like that was really crucial in convincing the IOC to allow women to run. I mean, it's I think it's interesting that this body, this governing organization, had to be really convinced that women could participate. Well, I mean, we could we could spin it in a positive light and say, well, that's good that they were looking out for what at the time was maybe the best for women if there was, if, if medical knowledge had not kind of figured out what was going on inside of women's bodies. Yeah, maybe they just thought women really weren't capable of it. Yeah. But, but I mean, as training, as training has improved, women have obviously shown that they're capable of achieving good times and marathons and not passing out. But here is the question. Mm -hmm. When it comes to men running, women running, will we ever catch up to the guys? Not exactly. 
There's a, a Time Magazine article from 2008 where Tim Noakes, a professor of exercise and sports science at the University of Cape Town, knocked that whole fat store theory, you know, that women have more fuel to propel them in a, in a long-distance long race. Um, he says that there is a lot to do with weight when comparing men and women and testosterone and muscle. Yes. If you, um, if you compare... Male and female, just recreational runners, not people who would be competing in the Olympics. The guys are about 22 pounds heavier than the women. So if you look at rec runners, that fat store idea might hold some more sway because women are lighter and they have these uh, longer-term energy stores, whereas men with higher muscle mass can burn calories quicker, but it's for those those short bur- shorter bursts of energy. But Noakes says that the world record marathon runners of each gender are very close in weight. I mean, if you look at those runners, they are pared down. to There is mm-hmm. not a single ounce of body fat on them. And he says um, that if you don't match for weight, then, yeah, women get the advantage. But once you match for weight, men still run about 10% faster. And it has to do with higher levels of testosterone that builds up the muscle that gets your foot off the ground as quickly as possible. Right. So he's basically saying, you know, when you look at just a general group of runners, whether it's in a marathon or a 5K or whatever, um, a woman running next to a bigger man is going to be able to move that mass around faster because she's lighter. So she might get a better time, but when you when you have runners of about the same weight, a man and a woman, the man will propel himself faster. Yeah, from any distance between 100 meters and 1,000 kilometers, women are consistently 9 to 11% slower than men. So chances are women are not going to catch up to men on the race, but that does not mean that women have not been getting faster times. Right. Uh, A 2000 Duke study uh, looked at women's increasing participation and their increasing speed, both in running and in swimming. And they point out that before the 70s, few women ran for recreation and amateur regulations on competitive racing barred them from distances longer than four kilometers, which we've touched on. And they have found that as women's participation in sports, not just running, has dramatically increased over the past century, the disparities in performance have decreased because women are being trained better than they were in the past. But nevertheless, you still see a pretty big gender gap. They point out that the women's 100-meter world record set in 1984 – and this was back in the year 2000, so that might have been broken since then. But they say that it's about the same as the men's record for 100 meters set 75 years earlier. But, I mean, nevertheless, if you chart the um, world records of – men's running versus women's running, women's times have decreased at a faster rate in the past 40 years than men's just because our participation has increased exponentially compared to them because we were not previously allowed to run very far. Yeah. And talking about participation, we should probably look at why people are participating uh, and competing in these in these crazy 
races that I won't even watch because they exhaust me. Why would you want to run 26 miles? You t- it's like that Brian Regan bit where he's talking about like all those Ironman type competitions. And he's like, I'm sure you don't have to do this. I always want to say that to runners. Like you don't, you can come inside and have a sandwich. I can just drive you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just... It's on my way. Yeah. That's going to be a short drive, like 20 minutes. Um, a 2010 study looked at people's motivations for running their first marathons and found that there are some common reasons for men and women. And those are to finish the race in a certain time, to feel proud of myself, and to improve my health. They found that men were more likely to provide reasons to do with achievement and competition, whereas women were more likely motivated by psychological reasons, such as to improve mood. But we should also point out that the study author did not think that you could extrapolate that data to say that men are inherently more competitive than women, but that uh, maybe this is an opportunity for all of us to expand our goals for running, whether it be to just cross the finish line and feel great about doing it or cross the finish line in a certain amount of time, or for me, sneak on to <laughs> a course and cross the finish line without getting caught. Right. And they, they do cite an author um, in this article that talks about the study. They cite an author who says that it doesn't really matter what your motivation is, whether it's I'm going to beat everyone and get the best time in the world, or I want to slim down and get healthy. You should just have a reason that works for you. Mm-hmm. Like my friend Nolan tells me this all the time, like when I'm complaining about how I don't run, and he's like, well, you should run and get in shape and stuff. And I'm like, well, but I don't even, I just want to go home and get my pajamas. And he just says that it's important just to have a reason to run. Whether it's I want to run so that I can get good enough to be in a marathon or I want to run to get healthy and feel better about myself. Well, I will tell you this. If you would like a pajama-related excuse to run, Uh anytime I run, I sleep so much better that night. Yeah, it's true. So it will make your pajama time (laughs) more enjoyable. More enjoyable and more worthwhile. So that I would encourage you to run for the sake of your of your pajamas. Um, And also join the legions of women who are running. Like we mentioned earlier, this is coming from runningusa.org. More women compete in road races than men do now. Um, According to their 2011 data, in 5Ks, 10Ks, and half marathons, women made up a majority of the competitors, but still um, more men do run the full marathon than women. 59% of men versus 41% women. And I thought it was interesting. They break down the demographics of these runners, these long-distance runners. Who are these people? And they looked at the women who participate. And by a long shot, the women, these women runners are college-educated. 79% have earned a college diploma as opposed to the general population, which is something like a quarter, like 27%. Um, they tend to be affluent, and they're active participants who train year-round and, on average, Bought 3.2 pairs of running shoes in the past year, and I think I've had my running shoes for about four years. I'm not one of these people. But you can be, Caroline. You can be. I Yeah, I guess. I just am busy. I don't have time to be running for four hours. Well, hey, why don't we, why don't we end this podcast with one final fun fact as to why, why do we call it a marathon in the first place? This was one thing that popped up in my head as we were researching this i just wanted to know where this whole marathon and why is it 26 miles uh for you 
fact nerds out there like me. This is coming from Live Science. Uh, marathon, the word marathon comes from a place called Marathon in Greece. It's not a gas station. It is not the gas station marathon. It is a city in Greece. And the origin of the marathon relates back to the founder of the International Olympic Committee while he was planning for the first Olympics. He came up with this 20, it was about 25 miles at the time, 25 mile run um, in relation to this chapter from Greek history with the run of a soldier from a battlefield near the town of Marathon, Greece to Athens in 490 BC in order to um, announce to the Athenians that they the Greeks had defeated the Persians. And apparently, though, the soldier delivered the message of victory and then he died. <laughs> well, good for him. I mean, at least he made it. I would have dropped dead way before that. <laughs> he was clearly running very fast. Yeah, a lot of the 25 entrants in that very first marathon in the very first Olympics in 1896, only nine runners hit the finish line. And then you have the Boston Marathon that was started soon thereafter, I believe in the following year, actually, um, as uh, re- directly related to the Olympics. Yeah. So... There's your marathon knowledge. Now, I know that we have only focused on marathon running. There's a lot more running topics that we could cover, but we figured that that would be biting off more than we could chew in one podcast. Exactly. So for now, let us know your thoughts on women and marathons. Oh, and by the way, I have never snuck into another race. If I And if I run the peach tree this year, I will do it with a number. So... You know, I, I, there we I, go. It was it was ignorance on my part. Race organizers of the world can rest easy. <laughs> yeah, I don't want I don't want some racing police at my door <laughs> after this podcast comes. Because those out. exist. Yes, mm-hmm. in my mind. <laughs> well, let us know your stories about running. Momstuff at discovery dot com is the email address you can send it to. And in the meantime, we've got a couple emails here to share. This first one is from Chelsea in relation to our richest women in the world podcast and uh at one point we made what she called a snarky little quip about john walton's kit built plane crash she writes i understand the confusion but i wanted to clear up about kit plane and experimental aircraft experimental aircraft is a name that is attached to any plane that is not built in a factory my dad has been working on a kit plane for more than half my life the point of building a plane yourself is not to save money and cut corners thereby producing a slipshod or subpar product these planes are a labor of love some planes may be low quality but one should not assume that all such planes are unsafe or less airworthy i've had to explain to so many people that yes he's building a plane no not a model and yes the kind people actually (laughs) ride in he has put an intense amount of love craftsmanship stubbornness and plain old anal retention into his plane i'm crazy proud of him and want others to know that a home-built plane is nothing to fear especially if you know that it was made by a true engineer that's great yeah i'm glad she informed us of that because i like probably many people had this idea of a kit that was not as safe. I was imagining just like a like an inflatable plane. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would be dangerous for sure. Okay, this email is from Anson, who is writing about our women pilot episode. I am writing from Yellowknife Northwest Territories, which was recently voted as the most female-friendly airport in the world. This is the result of an initiative called Girls Fly 2, started by a helicopter pilot at Trinity Helicopters here in Yellowknife. 
She wanted to fly 500 young women and girls in one day. Three weeks ago, the event took place under sunny skies and over 400 girls between ages 7 and 22 were flown. A friend who took her 13-year-old daughter reports that her daughter was thrilled and now talks of nothing else than becoming a helicopter pilot. I grew up around aviation and am now involved in air traffic services with NAV Canada, Canada's provider of ATC and ATS. I talk to many, many female pilots on the radio. Maybe about a third of all my contacts are female and increase since I started in this business 10 years ago. The future is very bright for women who want to become pilots and organizations like the Royal Canadian Air Cadets, the 99s, the Canadian Owners and Pilots Association, and the Experimental Aircraft Association are working hard at getting out the message that girls can fly too. Excellent. So, thanks to everyone who's written in. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. And there are a ton of articles all about running at our home website. It's HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.